Church, it's so good to be with you today. Once again, it's a very weighty privilege to bring God's word for us today. We're going to be wrapping up Matthew chapter 25 today. We're going to conclude that section, that part of the gospel where Jesus has been teaching his disciples and through, uh, through them, he's been teaching us about his second coming, about his returning. What's been happening is that through parables, Jesus has been teaching his disciples that in light of no one knowing the day or the hour of his returning, that we ought to be ready, that we need to be faithful and purposeful in our waiting for Jesus. Now, to be sure, not that our being ready, not that our being faithful and purposeful will save us, but that those who are genuinely saved will be ready. Those that are genuinely saved and know him will be faithful and purposeful as we wait for him. Jesus has been teaching in parables, but in today's text, Jesus' words are no longer in the form of a parable. He's no longer speaking in similes and metaphors of what things will be like, but he's offering us a sobering description of an event that will happen in the future, the judgment day. Nothing like kicking off December and the Christmas season with the Sermon on Judgment Day, right? But if we really think about it, it's very appropriate because this is the whole reason why Jesus came. This is the whole reason for Christmas, so that on that day that is to come, we might have hope and assurance in standing before King Jesus and not cowering in terror. So let's read Jesus' description of that day together. Lots of verses, but... Let's read the whole thing so that we can get the whole picture. Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me drink. You gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it 
to one of the least of these. You did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So there's coming a day of great judgment, Jesus says. A day of judgment that will determine the eternal destinies of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Every human being will live their lives, whether short or long, whether in advantage or disadvantage. Every single, single one of us, without exception, will one day face this judgment day and will have to give an account for the lives that we lived. And so right now, as you sit for a brief moment, try to imagine being there on that day. Close your eyes if it'll help you. King Jesus having returned. He's come back just like he said he would. And he's sitting on his glorious throne and all the angels are with him, it says. Can you imagine that? King Jesus sitting on his throne, all the angels with him. Not only that, there are people from every tongue, tribe, and nation that has ever lived throughout human history, and you're there too. You're there. All standing before this king, and there's going to be a pronouncement, there's going to be a judgment that will be uttered that will literally have forever ramifications, and that judgment will be final. That judgment will be unalterable. That judgment will be beyond contestation. Can you imagine being there on that day? And as you imagine that day, do you imagine it to be a glorious day filled with inexpressible joy? Or as you imagine it, even now, are you filled with uncertainty, doubt, and fear? This great day of judgment, regardless of how you feel about it now, it's coming. It's coming, it's going to happen. And we'll all be there. What's it going to be like? What's it going to be like? This great day of judgment. In the text today, I want us to see at least these three things. I want us to see first, the judge. Second, the judgment. And third, the invitation. The judge, the judgment, and the invitation. First, on this judgment day, we see the judge. Matthew 25, 31 says, when the Son of Man, that's Jesus' messianic title, when Jesus comes in his glory and all angels with him and he sits on his glorious throne, here we see the judge. And what we see is that he's no longer the lowly suffering servant. He's no longer the eight pound, six ounce, cuddly little baby Jesus in a manger, but he's the exalted King of Kings and the Lord of Lords sitting on his glorious throne with all the angels, it says. Revelation 19 tells us about this king who has returned to judge the living and the dead. Revelation 19 verse 11, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. 
And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is the judge. This is King Jesus. And Matthew 25 tells us that before this judge, before King Jesus will be gathered all the nations, all the peoples, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Not one sheep will be lost as a goat. Not one goat will sneak in as a sheep. Ezekiel prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 34 that there will come a day when God himself, when God himself will gather all of his sheep that have been scattered and how he will bring them into his good pasture to feed them, to bind up the injured, to strengthen the weak and make them lie down in good grazing land. Ezekiel prophesied that God himself will judge between each sheep, each goat, so that only the sheep, only those that truly belong to him will be let into his kingdom. What Jesus is doing is that he's making that connection to that Old Testament prophecy. Jesus is telling his disciples that I'm the one Ezekiel was talking about. In other words, there's coming a day, the great judgment day, and on that day, every single human being without exception will have to come to grips with who Jesus is. We live in a world right now where a thousand different people may have a thousand different opinion about who Jesus is, but not on that day. But not on that day. There's coming a day when there will be no more opinions about who Jesus is. There's coming a day when there will be no more arguing about, no more denying who Jesus is. There's coming a day when every single human being will have to come to grips with the deity, the kingship, the lordship of Jesus. It will be in front of our eyes in full display. There's coming a day of great separating. And that great separating one person from another will centrally and eternally hinge on one person. And his name is Jesus, that great judge who will be presiding over all human history. Think about this. Every single human being throughout all of human history, every single one of us will be there and we will either be directed to his right or to his left. We will be determined as his sheep or not his sheep. We will be determined and we will be welcomed into his kingdom or condemned to be forever cast outside of his kingdom. It will all hinge on this one person, the central person of the ages. And that is Jesus, the judge, the king of kings who sits on his glorious throne. And I want us to see who it is that's doing the parting. Who's doing the eternal dividing? It's Jesus. And I think we all see that. But I don't want us to miss what it is that's doing the parting. 
What parts them? On what basis is the parting taking place? Well, that too is Jesus. We are parted to his right to be commended or to his left to be condemned on the basis of how we dealt with him, on the basis of how we treated him in our lifetime. Matthew 25, verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come you are, who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. So do you see this church? Do you see how all throughout the sex, Jesus is making it all about him? Over and over and over again, he's pointing to himself. So in this text, don't miss him. It's all about him. Let's not read this text and immediately make it about ourselves, how we'll be treated, what's going to happen to us. It's about Jesus. It's about his centrality. It's about his kingship. It's about his absolute sovereign rule. In this text, we see Jesus. And next, we not only see the judge, but we see his judgment. We not only see Jesus, but we see Jesus' judgment. Remember the text saying, then the king will say to those on his right, then he will say to those on his left. So notice, after, after each person is separated to the right or to the left, after the determination of those that truly belong to him versus that, those that don't is made, after Jesus makes the judgment of those that are his sheep versus not is determined, then, then the description of their lives are given. Whether they fed the hungry, clothed the naked, and visited and cared for the sick, the stranger, and those in prison. Now, why am I making this point? Because we're tempted to read this text and think, okay, what Jesus is saying here is that it's all about helping the poor. If I help the poor, then I'll make it to he heaven. If I don't help the poor, then I'll go to hell. And now, is that what Jesus is saying here? Well, let's not immediately and completely dismiss that notion because we know from the Bible that the poor are very close to the heart of God. Over 200 times in the Old Testament alone, it talks about the poor, commands to help, commands to give, commands not to exploit, commands to serve and maintain their dignity. The poor are very close to the heart of God. So the critical question we should be asking when confronted with this text is, Okay, so are we saved based upon our serving the poor? Are we saved based upon our works? Or are we saved based upon Jesus' work, his work alone on the cross? What we have to be careful to notice in this text is that Jesus makes his judgment of dividing the sheep from the goats, from the sheep from the goats first. And then he describes each of their lives were like. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. 
I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And so if there's any hope of us being parted to his right on that day, it's going to be because the good shepherd and the good shepherd alone, that he will see you, recognize you and say, that's my sheep. That's my son. That's my daughter. I laid down my life for my sheep. I laid down my life for you. That's our only hope. What we're seeing is that it's on the basis of the good shepherd's work alone in knowing his sheep and in laying down his life for his sheep that we're saved. So why? Why the description of our works? Why the description of whether we did or didn't give food and drink? Why the description of whether we did or didn't clothe the naked and visit the sick and in prison? The description is given as the evidence of our salvation, not the basis for our salvation. In other words, Jesus isn't saying that those who help the poor will be saved. He's saying that those who are saved will help the poor. He's not saying those who help the poor are saved. He's saying those who are saved will undoubtedly help the poor. Jesus is always saying you will know them by their fruit, right? What Jesus is saying is that Here's how to know whether someone is a sheep or a goat. Here's how to know whether someone has truly experienced the cross of Jesus or not by looking at how they treat the poor, especially and specifically the poor within God's church. As you did it unto the least of these, my brothers, Jesus said, you did it unto me. We're called to love, we're called to do good to everybody, but especially to those within the household of faith, Galatians 6.10 tells us. And Jesus is making this the litmus test. If you were in charge of determining the litmus test, what would you have made it? Here's how you can know whether someone is truly saved or not, based upon whether they, what? Because notice, Jesus didn't make the litmus test words on whether you just say you're a Christian or not. Here's how to know whether somebody is saved or not, based upon whether they say they're a Christian or not, based upon whether they say they love Jesus or not. He didn't make the litmus test a prayer on whether you prayed some prayer or not. Here's how to know whether someone belongs to Jesus or not. Well, did they say this prayer or not? And he didn't make the litmus test some emotion on whether you feel all warm and fuzzy inside when you sing songs on Sunday. Here's how to know whether somebody is saved or not. Well, when they show up on Sunday, when they come to church and when they sing, do they feel something inside? He didn't make it church attendance. He didn't make it daily Bible reading. While all those things are invaluable and not to be neglected, he didn't make those things the litmus test reserved for judgment day. He made the litmus test, you're serving the poor. He made the litmus test, well, in your life, did you serve the poor or did you not serve the poor? And so we can end the message here and say, okay, go help the poor. And many of you will and many of you do. We could present some big cause or campaign and ask you to sign up to serve, ask you to sign up to give, and I think many of you would. 
But I think if we stopped here, that, that not many of us would do it in a lasting way. I think many of us will do it perhaps out of guilt and perhaps out of fear that if you don't, you'll go to hell. And is that the kind of serving the poor that Jesus has in mind for us? To help the poor out of guilt and fear? Or perhaps in today's political and cultural climate, it's not that simple. Seems like so many in our country, including Christians, are so busy debating about what it really means to help the needs around us that really many of us just find ourselves doing less and less because there's just so much confusion. We come up with all sorts of excuses and objections, perhaps even in the name of truly trying to help. Well, there's nothing new under the sun and in the 1830s in Scotland, Robert Murray McShane preached on the text, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In it, he addressed the objections that were being raised in his own church. See if you find some of your own objections there. Objection, my money is my own. What I have, I earned it. It's mine. Why should I give it away? Answer, Christ might have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. No man forceth it from me then where should we have been? Objection. The poor are undeserving. The poor are poor and it's their fault. It's because of their bad life choices. Why should I help? Answer. Christ, I've said the same thing. They are wicked rebels against my father's law. It's their fault. Shall I lay down my life for these? I will give to the good angels, but no, he gave his blood for the undeserved. Objection. The poor may abuse it. If I give, they'll just go spend it on junk. If I give, they'll just go waste it. Why should I give it? Answer. Christ might have said the same thing. Yea, with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it that many would make it an excuse for sinning more, yet he gave his own blood. How many of us have trampled on the blood of Jesus? How many of us have given into that temptation, ultimately thinking, well, he'll forgive me. Well, he'll forgive me. Jesus, knowing knowing that you would trample on his blood at times, he still shed his blood for you. The issue of poverty is complex. I think we all get that. Is poverty driven by systemic issues or personal issues? Is the individual to blame or the system to blame? And there should be room to reasonably talk and think wisely about those things, but let's not get so caught up in the debates so that we don't ever personally give food Water, hospitality, right? We don't personally ever offer medical care to those in need. Let's not ever get so caught up in the cultural and political climate of today that we don't ever take part in the simple, faithful act of helping, serving, giving to those in need. Now, lastly, in this text, I want us to see Jesus's invitation. That he's not guilting us into serving the poor. That he's not scaring us into serving the poor, but that he's inviting us into serving the poor. 
He's inviting us to serve the poor as he's inviting us to see, now listen, he's inviting us to serve the poor as he's inviting us to see the extent to which he himself embraced poverty for us so that we might become rich in him. As Robert McShane was talking about, and as 2 Corinthians 8, 9 tells us, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might by his poverty become rich. Why did Jesus make helping the poor the litmus test? For whether someone who has truly known Jesus and have experienced the cross of Jesus in their lives. Because Jesus is saying, look, I became poor for you. Jesus is saying, I became poor for you. Because that's what the gospel is all about, isn't it? Jesus is inviting us to see that the one who had all power, all riches, all wealth, laid it all down and became weak and vulnerable for us laying in a manger. Isn't that what Christmas is all about? Jesus in the manger. Don't we see his nakedness there? Don't we see his poverty there? Don't we see his hungering and thirsting there? Isn't that what Christmas is all about? His willingness to take on all of that for us, for you. But he not only embraced the vulnerability of nakedness in the manger for us, but as Roman soldiers gambled for his clothes, he embraced the humiliation of nakedness on the cross for us as well. As he cried, I thirst on the cross, he became thirsty for us. We're not only embraced, he not only embraced the helplessness of a baby as he was cared for by a teenage girl, but as he was being beaten and crucified by Roman soldiers, he embraced the helplessness of being falsely accused as a criminal. He's inviting us to see that he wasn't merely sick and imprisoned for us, but he was sentenced to death for us. He didn't just become an immigrant for us, moving from heaven to earth. He's inviting us to see that he didn't just become a stranger for us in his incarnation. He became forsaken for us. He didn't just become human for us. He became sin for us in his condemnation. Jesus is saying, I became poor for you. Extent of poverty to which no one has ever known. He's saying, to that extent, I became poor for you. And what he's saying is that if you truly see that the central figure in all the universe, the central figure upon whom hangs the eternal fate of every human being, if you truly see that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords has become poor for you, not just people in general, not just the church in general, when you see that he did that for you, so that you might by his poverty become rich in him, then you'll never be able to look at the poor in the same way ever again. You'll never be able to ignore the poverty of others. You'll never be able to make excuses. You'll never be able to close your heart against what they're going through. Why? Why? 
Because you'll see in their suffering a glimpse into what Jesus suffered for you. Because you'll see in their poverty the poverty that Jesus himself embraced for you. And so you'll find that it is both your greatest responsibility in all the world and your greatest joy in all the world to be able to do something to help to alleviate the suffering, to ease the burden of poverty. You know, one of the things that gives me most joy when I get, is when I get a chance to help somebody who's an immigrant. And not only because I'm an immigrant, but because my parents became immigrants for me, for my sister. They left their home, they left their country, they left their family, they left their culture, they left their foods, everything that they knew so that I might benefit, so that I might benefit. And so, so much of what I have and enjoy today is because of their willingness to embrace poverty for me. And so when I see an immigrant, I can't help but to see in them my parents. And so it gives me so much joy whenever I get to do something, whenever I get to give something to help an immigrant family in need. And what my parents did for me, times a billion, to the trillionth power, is what Jesus did for you. Because Jesus became poor for us, how should we relate with the poor? Because Jesus became poor for us, so that we might become rich in him, we should never be able to look at the poor without also seeing Jesus in them, without also being reminded of what Jesus has done for us. And in that moment, when we see that, and when we do something to help, when we do something to serve, Jesus will commend us by saying, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And notice, where's the commendation found? Not when I was hungry and thirsty, you solved the policies influencing food and water shortages. Not when I was naked and a stranger, you changed immigration laws and answered the question of where the problem of poverty is truly rooted. Identifying and fixing those problems would be incredible. But that's not where the commendation was given. Because not all of us have the power or the influence or the in intellect to solve those big problems. And so instead, the commendation is given to the simple acts. Simple act that any one of us can do. The simple act of when you saw the hungry, what did you do? When you saw the hungry, you gave them food. When you saw the thirsty, you gave them drink. You welcomed the immigrant. You invited them into your home for dinner. You clothed the naked. And when people were sick, you cared for them. And as you did it to the least of these, Jesus says, you did it unto me. In Matthew chapter seven, Jesus tells us something that those on his left will say to him on that day. That's not included here in Matthew 25, Matthew 7, verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? 
And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. How many of us have prophesied in Jesus' name? Maybe some of us, certainly not all of us. How many of us have cast out demons in Jesus' name? How many of us can say that we've done many mighty works in Jesus' name? And so don't you see that if Jesus made these things the litmus test for, the, for whether we belong to him or not, we'd all be in trouble. And he's showing us here that there's a way that we can be doing even big and mighty things all without really knowing him. We all want to be a part of doing big things. And maybe you're waiting around so that you can do that big thing. But have you done the small things? Have you done the everyday faithful thing? If we don't do the everyday faithful things for Jesus, what makes us think that we'll ever do that big thing for Jesus? Perhaps you want to accomplish that one big thing for Jesus so that you can say, look, I did it. So surely I belong to you. And so surely you'll let me into your kingdom. We want to do big things and accomplish many mighty works so that maybe we can put God in our debt to say, okay, now you owe me. But what Jesus is saying to us in this text is, no, I did the big thing. And so you go do the small things. He's saying, I accomplished on the cross the biggest thing, the most complex, the most monumental thing in human history. And so you go do the everyday faithful thing. He's saying, I did the thing. I did the thing that only a king could do. So you go do the things that servants should do. He's saying, I demonstrated my love for you in the greatest way possible in laying down my life for you. And so you demonstrate your love for me by laying down your time, by laying down your money, your time your schedules and plans and whatever it takes in order to love and serve those in need around you. He's saying, I became poor for you. Will you become poor for others? He's saying, I became weak for you. Will you become weak for others? He's saying, I was determined to serve you even when it cost me my life. So will you serve others even when it costs you? He's inviting us to see, he's inviting us to do for others in the smallest of ways what he himself has done for us in the greatest of ways. And so on that day, you will hear King Jesus say to you one of two things. And I want to love you enough by reminding you and reminding myself, we will hear only one of two things from King Jesus on that day. You'll either hear King Jesus say, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Or you will hear, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Church, he became poor for you so that we might by his poverty become rich in him. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for this amazing truth. We thank you for this great gospel. That though he was rich, yet he became poor so that we might by his poverty become rich in him. And so Father, in light of that poverty your son was willing to embrace for us, let us never be able to see poverty in the same way. Let us never be able to close our hearts, make objections against serving the poor and the needy around us, especially those within this church especially those within the household of faith. Church, in this moment right now, will you ask God? God, even now, is there a place? Is there someone that you're calling me to help? That you're calling me to give? You're calling me to serve? Will you ask him? And church, whatever he reveals to you, will you make a commitment to go do that? Jesus said, as you do it unto the least of my brothers, you did it unto me. And church, right now, will you make a determination in your heart not to cheapen the gospel, not to cheapen the extent to which Jesus has become poor for us by doing that one thing and then being done and saying, I did it. Will you ask God to give you eyes to see for the rest of your days? Will you ask God for the faith to be able to pray and ask every day, God, is there something you want me to do today in helping the poor. God, if there's some need around me, will you help me to see that today? And to the extent that you have blessed me so that I might bless others, help me to do that. Help me to give, help me to serve as unto Jesus. Church, what if we became a church like that? What if we were a people like that? known for our helping, known for our serving, known for our giving, not known for our excuses, not known for our objections, but serving, giving, laying down, because that's what our King Jesus did for us. But Father, will you do that? Will you help us? Apart from your mercy, apart from your grace, we can't do it. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.